Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step -step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Manda Scott. Manda is a veterinarian, an author, a shamanic teacher, and a climate crisis activist. Before I introduce this week's guest, let me give you a little background. I'm sure most of you listening to this podcast are familiar with TED Talks. Well, like most of you, I listen to them now and then, and for the most part, I listen to them, I find them interesting, but I don't really remember them. Except now and then, one really does make an impact. And that was a case with a talk that I watched it's got to be five or six years ago, if not more. It was given by Alan Savory, and he was talking about desertification. Savory grew up in Africa, and initially he was very anti-livestock. He saw the cattle that were on the land as part of the problem, part of what was destroying the land. It was where he would see grassland and then with the what was seen as overgrazing, the land was being turned to desert. We've all heard the news stories of the drought and the starvation which has afflicted Africa. We've seen the images of parched land, of dying vegetation, and it's heartbreaking. And Savory shared some of those photos in his talk see this land that where a rainstorm is just come and, and driven across the land and then a day later the land is dry again because the soil is so crusted and and so hard that the water cannot penetrate and so it might as well not have rained at all and then he turns the camera to look over at land that he has been managing through his techniques of mob grazing and of rotational grazing. And you see a green landscape. You see water in creeks. You see grass that's waist high. It's extraordinary, the difference. And it's come from not looking at livestock as the problem, but as livestock as part of the solution. And his ideas, he, he set about, you know, one of those crusaders to change the world, to change how we view livestock and to change how livestock is raised. And so his work is very much woven into what you encounter when you start looking at regenerative farming. I was just sent a link to an article that appeared on the CNN website that was describing the system of concentrating cows into small areas so that they eat down the grass in that area. And then before they can stay there very long, and they, they're moved to the next area. And they leave behind their manure, which fertilizes the ground. So what Savory was pointing out and what these farmers, both in Africa and, and South America and, and and the United States, farmers all over the planet are discovering is 
what should be so obvious that grass, grasslands, evolved with their herbivores. And they're dependent on one another. So when you take the herbivores away, when you put them into feedlots, and you take away that natural cycle of regenerating the, the soil, you end up with dead soil. And in modern agriculture, you pump in fertilizer and you use pesticides and herbicides on your crops to create these enormous yields that we see and, and that have been feeding the planet, but feeding the planet at a cost. So we're growing plants on soil that is increasingly becoming dead. But what we need is living soil because it's living soil that sequesters carbon. And it's living soil that supports the plants and that supports the biodiversity, both above and below ground. So I've been really intrigued by Savory's work. And it really got me thinking about, well, you know, I have horses and I have pasture, and I could be making a difference by making sure that my pasture is really healthy and that the soil is alive. And that if I have living soil, I am helping to sequester carbon in the ground. And as horse people, as we really begin to understand this and appreciate this, and we talk about how you can sequester carbon in the ground. Well, we can be part of the solution, part of the solution that really gets that message out, that helps to get it out in so many different ways so that people who own houses with their green lawn out in front, that we change the way we look at our lawns, that we start seeing them as an opportunity to sequester carbon. And instead of putting chemicals down on our lawns to create that monoculture, that we see them as a grassland, as a healthy grassland that can sequester carbon. And that we get the message out to consumers to say, you know, when I go to the grocery store, I want to buy food that comes from not necessarily food that's organic. You know, that label may not be enough. I want to buy food that comes from farms that are practicing regenerative farming. I want to buy food that's grown on living soil. And as we become more aware of what that means, we can be part of the message, part of the support system that really encourages farmers and ranchers to look in this direction. Okay, so that's the salt box. I've clearly been intrigued by Savory's work for quite a while. And when I started doing the Horses for Future podcast, I went back to the TED Talks and tracked down that talk and listened to it again and had that same, yes, this is a direction we need to go. And its work, his work is something that I've wanted to share in these podcasts. Which brings me oddly enough, 
to the recent Art and Science of Animal Training Conference. Now, you may not think there's much of a connection. The Art and Science of Animal Training Conference, we're looking at behavior analysis, we're looking at types of training in which positive reinforcement is, is used and the science behind that. So what's the connection? Well, it's this. Hannah Branigan and I were both presenting at the conference. Hannah is a dog trainer and like me, she uses positive reinforcement in her training. And we are both obsessed with balance. So we always take the opportunity when we're together at conferences to spend a little time visiting. And while we were just chatting over, I think it was dinner one night, she shared a story about hiking the Appalachian Trail. I've actually, I'm not sure how the story came up. Hannah was telling me how she came off the trail at one point looking for, I don't know, for shelter or food or directions. I, I've forgotten and I really don't remember the details of the story. And you're going to see in a moment why I've, I lost track of the details of the story. But eventually they ended up at a house and the owner saw them and invited them in which is always a little worrying when you don't know who this individual is. But, you know, when you've been hiking the Appalachian Trail, you begin to see humans as, as basically friendly. So they had a lovely visit. And you're going to understand in a moment why I'm a little vague on the details. Because one of the things that Hannah shared with me is that this individual who had invited them into his house had a trapeze hanging from the ceiling. And I was so distracted by the idea of a trapeze in your living room that I lost track of everything else until Hannah started to tell me that he used to live out west and he had worked with Alan Savory. In fact, he was one of the co-authors of Savory's book on holistic range management. And that's when my ears really perked forward. And I started really asking questions. And it turns out that this person that Hannah had stumbled across was Sam Bingham. And she had become friends with him. And she became the contact for me to connect me with him. So I emailed him and asked him if he would be willing to do this podcast, which he agreed to. And so this is a somewhat roundabout and unusual way to introduce a guest. But I've never known anyone before who has a trapeze in his living room, and I just had to share that detail. So when the three of us got together to record this podcast, it started out with some major computer glitches. We had a terrible time connecting, but we all demonstrated that we're very persistent. And by the time we got the connection sorted out and we were ready to record, it sort of threw us all off our stride a little bit in terms of doing a proper formal introduction. So we just jumped into the conversation, which is what we're going to do now. And I'm going to let Sam Bingham tell you about his background. But I'm a retired journalist who grew up among horses and foxhounds in western North Carolina. And uh, about 40 years ago, I collaborated 
wound up collaborating with Alan Savory and his wife, Jody Butterfield, in writing the first two of his books on holistic management. And Alan Savory is a subject in himself, but he's one of the early people who worked on the idea of grazing in the image of nature. Uh, he was inspired by wild herds in Africa, where he was in that then Rhodesia. And he's since become quite an item in his own right. So we've been associated with him for the last 40-odd years. It was really Alan Savory's work that got me, I don't want to say started, but certainly prompted, pushed me in the direction of starting the Horses for Future. Because I remember several years ago listening to the TED Talk that he did. Uh Oh, yes. And and I listen, I don't listen to a lot of TED Talks, but I listen, like everybody, I listen to a fair number of them. And for the most part, I don't remember them. You know, you you listen to things, you watch things, and most of them are not terribly memorable. But that one really, his talk really stayed with me. And when we started doing The Horses for Future, I went back and found it. And I think his... Certainly the images that he showed in that TED Talk were startling in their contrast. So can we begin, let's begin with talking about the desertification and what that means. Because I I think, especially since I live in upstate New York, Manda's in the UK, we don't live in the kind of brittle environments that you describe in the, for example, that you describe in your book, The Last Ranch, which that's a totally different kind of landscape from that which I live in. So can you talk a little bit about what's been happening to grasslands? Why did, why did the plants lose interest? I love that, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, well, First of all, this is strict savory doctrine, but it seems it works, and I'm living it now. That the the uh, there is a gradation of what he calls brittleness from the kind of stuff that you saw in New Mexico, and where I met him, I was working in Arizona, where it is very dry, pretty much arid, semi-arid, and the non-brittle kind of place where we live now and uh, Amanda's in in England and you in upstate New York where it's much more moist that's the sort of obvious characteristic or where I am where we get four feet of rain or more a year and the difference is in terms of grassland that in the brittle side of the environment carbon does not recycle from biological activity very well grass that grows, dries, and stays there for 10 years until it desiccates and falls over. And soil does not form without disturbance on bare ground, whereas where we are, a a cement surface will become moldy and moss will grow there. So the effect is, in the brittle side, the big grazing animals evolved and they recycled the carbon. They reduced the plant matter to a form that was semi-digested and incorporated in the, into the land, and it cycles. That process in our non-brittle environments happens automatically because microbes and so forth attack that in the humid environment, and they break it down. 
which means if you take animals off the land entirely, grazing animals in a brittle environment, it stagnates and the plant spacings get bigger and it will desertify very much as it does if you have too many that hang around too long and they eat it and, and nothing can grow. In a, our places where I am now and what I fight with every day, if you take big grazing animals off a pasture in five years, the woods have already started so much you can't even grow, you can't mow it anymore and it'll turn back into forest by itself. So that is a major difference that affects the management of grassland wherever you are. And that said, what do you do to maintain a healthy grassland in either place? And it's, they, it's much more straightforward in those prairie areas that were grassland aboriginally, uh, but there also was were always open spaces with large animals in them in the brittle in the non-brittle environments like we have too so but it's much more difficult keep that forest from regenerating under the feet even of your animals but it can be done and and it's it's better to do it with your horses than to do it with heavy machinery which is the uh, basically the other alternative or or fire anyway get on to the details of what role fire plays in this and it's that is a subject that's much talked about with a lot of both good bad and mythical mythical information in it too but basically the animal is recycling carbon and treading on stuff and the how do you make animals under domestic supervision do that and not do something else, which <laughs> which they tend to do, and horses are very interesting in that in that regard. You know, they're they're herding animals, and they they have herding behaviors, but they have some unique things about them. I was fascinated to hear to listen on your podcast of the, the what's her name, um, uh, Jane Myers. With the, yeah, 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 yeah. She she had thought this through more than I had uh, actually. What reiterated things that were that I've really come to appreciate about horses that I didn't even notice growing up about with them. Like, for instance, in a couple of horses in a pasture will pick a place where they like to lounge and they pick a place where they like to defecate too. The, the, the cows don't do that. The horses will, in a pasture where there are a couple of horses, there'll be one quarter. This is where I, all the manure piles up. It's fascinating. I don't know why that is, but and they also like to lounge, which in one in one place, even in a huge place, they'll pick one place where, when they're in their downtime, they'll go and they'll stand there, and they'll make it bare. I learned this with these ponies that we have, and I was rigorously moving them every day, and especially when it was raining, they would take their little paddock and they would figure out one place where they like to lounge, and it would be bare in several hours. <laughs> so I wound up with all these paddocks that were properly grazed, but every single one of them had a big bare spot in in the corner that they picked to be there, you know. And she noticed that, and she said, well, if you're going to have a big, a lot of horses, you have to have a sacrifice area or a hard area or a place where they can lounge and they can go and they'll go there and then they'll graze the rest of it properly and i can really appreciate that because i i wound up having 
making these long, narrow paddocks with a that all went to one water place, and so that would be the lounge place for all these all the places that they were, and yeah, we would it would turn bare. The other thing that she really talked about was the diversity of stuff in the in the pasture, and that becomes very interesting because of all the prejudices people have about what horses should eat and shouldn't eat, and what if my fifty thousand dollar dressage horse eats something and gets sick or gets laminitis or whatever. And, and uh, so pe horse people are very, very finicky about what goes on in the pasture. But basically an overgrazed pasture gets worse and worse and more and more likely to get toxic. So, and, and horses are very selective. So if they have something non-toxic to eat, they'll eat that. Anyway, I'm getting on my rant and I need direction if you want to talk. No, for rants it. are wonderful. I like rants. <laughs> yeah. So cows are so I I really don't know cows at all. So the cows don't have that area in the field the way horses do. That seems to be the segregated area for manure. They just drop manure wherever. Is that a difference? Pretty much. They're much more, and their manure is different too. The cow manure is there because they're ruminants. It's more digested and it breaks down once further faster than horses does it it it's sort of soupy and once the the if they don't have ivermectin that's that's a big thing the horse people use is ivermectin but that's basically sterilizes the manure and nothing will eat it so it it lingers but cow manure breaks down much faster than than uh, horse manure and uh, just because it's it's further broken down in their gut they also the other thing that about horses which is interesting they unlike the ruminants they have teeth on top and bottom so they're they can't digest as many things as a goat can or or a cow but they can chew up damn near anything and they can chew be much more aggressive about it they can for instance when you turn a horse into a pasture they're very selective and they will take all the clover right smack to the ground you know right they eat right to eighth of an inch it's not a question of stopping it when they're down below four inches they'll take the things they like all the way to the ground and they can eat and if you leave them in a forest with nothing else to eat, they'll peel the bark off trees and eat that too. And they'll kill the trees. Just those teeth are a horse's teeth can do a lot, positive and negative. So they their their reaction is a little different, and that's one of the reasons why we, for instance, really like to have a few goats around because goats eat different things they eat a lot of they eat a lot of grass and there's virtually nothing a goat cannot digest so they don't their toxic things are not nearly as dangerous as they are for for horses but if the horses have everything they need they'll basically avoid things that they don't like i mean they don't they're not good for them we had when my wife and i worked on the navajo indian reservation this is where we met savory in arizona for a long time and there are a lot of feral horses there. One year, for instance, there was a lot of warm rain came early, and all this loco weed broke out, and it was the only green thing around. And there was not more loco weed than there ever had been, but it appeared at a time when there was nothing else. And there was a huge death of horses from eating loco weed. It didn't happen every year. The loco weed was the same. It just 
it was a time when it appeared when nothing else was there. So that sort of thing is a function of diversity and, and having yes. other stuff. Yes. But horses, it's an art. And you talk about people, people's attitudes. You, you really have to awaken people's experimental and desire to go into this thing because if you're especially if you're restoring something you don't know what's going to grow there but all kinds of stuff will there's always thousands of seeds and stuff and you may get you get a bloom of one horrible thing or another horrible thing and you have to kind of ride that out as the pasture reaches the succession carries it to greater diversity and and more desirable things you know i don't know around here you can look see a a pasture where the horses have been for a long time and it's yellow with synquefoil which they don't eat in sort of semi-toxic stuff and it'd be wall-to-wall synquefoil because they've killed off everything else by being selective and that's what's there and then for that to go away really means you have to give something else ability to grow if you if you plow it all under and plant something else, it'll all come right back. It has it has roots, and you know it's, it's you can't get rid of it with mechanical means all that easily. But you can outlast it. If you have got something like that that's outcompeting everything else because the horses have have left it, how would you deal with that? Well, I think the it depends of course on a lot of things but this business with a lounge area if you have and very many horse operations never have enough land to make that totally support the horses you always have winding feeding them and this is not true with a commercial cattle arrangement where you may feed for a part of the year but you're basically raising grass and people with horses tend to have more horses than they have grass so they wind up feeding them and you can just make sure that when you are feeding them you have they get enough from your feed so they're not forced to eat the things they don't want to eat and then you rotate them so that things that they like have a chance to grow back and legumes are one of the real indicator things you can you can see, and it, it means that you're going to wind up moving them if you're going you're doing some kind of a rotation to give things time to grow back, and you're going to make the deficit up for by feeding them. And they they don't want to go hungry. They'll eat the roll of hay, and then they'll get what they can from the from the ground. And this is one of the hard things to get across to people you're talking to that. It's the time is the key issue. And even if they graze it way low and they have a, it has enough time to recover, you're not going to overgraze it. Most things will recover if they have enough time. So you've got, you've got to do whatever you have to do to, so that they don't come back on that strip before things are ready to eat again. And it's counterintuitive but the overgrazing the serious overgrazing occurs most when the growing conditions are best and the tra- and the plants are trying to regrow so that they, they grow an inch and or a half an inch and they get it eaten and then two weeks or 10 days later they're another half inch and they get eaten off again and that that's what kills them if it's real drought they're not trying to grow so so they get eaten to the ground that's it you know they they just stay there until 
they get rain and it comes out. So it's better to graze them too hard in three days and give them 40 days rest than it is to graze them lightly for 40 days. You see what I mean? I do. And of course, that's the tricky part because it requires having enough land to rotate or putting the horses in such small areas that they don't have the the walking around, the enrichment of being out in a nice big field. Well, this is a design issue. This becomes a design issue. And I, why I've, her name doesn't come to the lady from Australia we were talking about. Jane Myers. Yeah, Myers. She saw that immediately. She talks about it. And she, her solution is to have a really nice lounge area where they can get to and they can they can eat there, and when they want to go out, they can go out. But so you can make, if you have flat land, you can have radiating fence, electric fences, or something, and and so they have the same lounge area, and a lot of horses can be there, and they'll go out and they'll run around and do whatever they want to do in those smaller paddocks. But you're not as a as an owner depending on the grass growing there to actually feed them you weren't or feed them enough you weren't anyway because it was all bare and mud and but now you want grass but it's you're never going to get enough to feed the horses you have in most cases where people have commercial stables or have a backyard pasture with five horses and two acres or something like that but you can make it really green and you can make it a they can have enough place to run in and you can get much more out of it nutrition wise than you did before and you can get rid of the weeds you can do all these things you have to set it up with so that the horses can do their lounging in in one area that you don't that's hard or something like that yes yes maybe you don't uh you do shut it down it maybe it takes you a month or a week or whatever it is to go through all your pastures with your two horses or two your in your on your two acre plot and you do that and then you keep them in for two weeks mm-hmm. and feed them and don't let them go out there so when they go back on so the first place has enough rest the things that happen are pretty exciting and they're pretty subtle too sometimes that makes it fun <laughs> I gotta watch and yes. see what happens Yes, it's I'm I one of the reasons I'm really excited about was what you sent was I forwarded it to this lady where our ponies are right now that she has a a riding school and she keeps loves to use them in the winter time when our grandkids aren't around they live away and she has just a, acres and acres of mud it's terrible and but she has like forty horses there and they're. Uh, and it's it's a travesty. It's awful. And I, my ponies are now there too. But they, she could get something out of it, and it wouldn't be such an eyesore for sure. And the horses do spend most of the time standing around the mud. They they might as well be on concrete somewhere. That's yeah, some form of hardcore. That's that's exactly right. That and that's really what we want to to encourage people to shift to is that. A different way of maintaining their their horses, so that when the horses are out, they're out in an environment that they can enjoy. I kept yeah. for years. I kept my horses at a boarding barn, and that was 
in many ways, it was very frustrating because when you are devoted to your horses, you want to provide them with a wonderful and great life. And when you're at a boarding barn, they have to share the resources. And they had to share resources with 50 other horses. Mm. There were a lot of horses. But the owner of that farm, somehow or another, managed to keep grass in all of the paddocks. So that when the horses went out, they got to go out and graze. They didn't go out very long. You know, they'd have half an hour, an hour of grazing time max, but they got grazing time. And I would much prefer that than having them out all the time standing around in mud. Yeah, I, that that's definitely, I would be with you 100% on, on that. One of the things that is a learning curve for most, a lot of horse people, there's a lot of fear of electric fences and you know oh i couldn't i have to have big tapes and you couldn't have too much voltage it's a high strung thoroughbred and you'll go freak out or whatever it is and maybe because i really started with shaggy ponies and cattle and things i a horse any horse can learn a, a fence and know where it is in the dark pretty quick and to get a and I use this poly wire on these step-in posts, and the cows will go through it before the horses will. It's it's wonderful. That's right. so I'm, I've never had any problem with that. And yeah, somebody hits the fence and they squeal a bit and run around, but they only do it once or twice, and then they know where it is in the dark. They don't mess with it. So let me go back to your early association with Alan Savory. I, I loved your description of him in in your book, the the Last Ranch. He sounds like one of those individuals. Somebody like Steven Spielberg should, should be making a movie yeah. about his life. Really, absolutely, <laughs> really interesting yeah. person. Could you describe him a little bit for for people who aren't familiar with with his work? I've been looking for a good stopping point, and I think this is it. Alan Savory is really one of those larger-than-life characters, and Sam has known him for almost 40 years, so we're going to let him tell you about him. While you're waiting for next week's episode, you can watch Savory's TED Talk. You'll find it at TED.com. I'll put a link in the show notes, or you can just go to TED.com and do a search on Alan Savory. You'll find his talk very easily by doing that. I'm also going to include a link to an episode of Living on Earth, which features another land restoration project, this time in Mexico, especially if you are living in what Savory refers to as a brittle environment, in other words, an arid environment. These references may inspire you to find your own creative changes that will contribute to a healthier planet. I recorded this podcast in February when the coronavirus was just another distant news story that I listened to on the radio. It wasn't anything that had anything to do with my life, not directly. <laughs> it really does seem like a world away, just a, a lifetime away. I live in upstate New York, so the virus became something that very definitely was no longer somebody else's news story. It was impacting the lives of 
everybody in this country, and particularly it was impacting those of us who live in New York because the city was the epicenter of the viral infection in this country. So in New York, we took the lockdown and the physical distancing really seriously, and it's made a difference. In three months, New York State has gone from being the worst in the country to the best. Hospitalization rates are down. The number of people dying has gone from close to 800 per day to around 25. Just, just an astounding turnaround. We have the lowest transmission rate in the country. What this is showing us is that when you follow the data, when you listen to the scientists, when you follow their recommendations, that we can change our behavior and it works. So that's one of the really great lessons that we need to take from this virus. It's a very hopeful lesson. The scientists and the sociologists who study climate change, they're painting a very, very grim future for us if we don't change our behavior. But what the coronavirus has shown is that we can pivot, and we can pivot fast. We can change our behavior. When we listen to the scientists, when we follow what the data is telling us, and when we make the changes that are needed, it does make a difference. In New York State, we flattened the curve, and that's something to celebrate, at least while it lasts. Well, we've all had to make changes, and I've had to make uh, quite a few changes in the way that I live. For one thing, I had to cancel all of my spring clinics. So I've been reinventing how I give clinics in this age of corona. In May, I experimented with my first virtual clinic. And I have to say, I was really delighted by the result. This new format worked. It felt like a real clinic. It was a real clinic. We had just a great time together. We built great communication back and forth, and we had really good learning. So I'm going to give more of these clinics. In fact, if the virus disappeared tomorrow, I would still offer these virtual clinics. So I've scheduled several for July. You can read about them on my website, theclickercenter.com. Look under the events tab for the stay-at-home clinics. It isn't lost on me that these clinics leave a much smaller carbon footprint than a regular clinic. So do check them out. If you're interested in positive reinforcement training, I hope you'll join me now that geography is no longer a barrier. Again, you can go to my website, theclickercenter.com, to learn more about them and to check out the schedule. The next one that I'll be giving is July 10 through 12. And the title of it is Constructional Training, What and Why. I'll let you visit the website to find out what that means. This one is in particular for West Coasters. It's taking the place of the July California Clinic. So we'll be holding it in the Pacific time zone. July 17 through 19, I'll be back in the Eastern time zone for a stay-at-home clinic on rope handling. Yes, we're going to have a virtual rope handling clinic. It should be fun. And I'll be joined for that one 
by Rebecca Schultz, who teaches classical Pilates. We'll have Pilates sessions each day of the clinic. So that's going to be really a nice addition. The group size for these clinics is small. Uh, it's intentionally kept very small so that we can have the, that one-on-one -on -one interaction with people. And that means that I'm going to be repeating these clinics at different times of the year so that more people can participate in them. And I'll be setting them up for different time zones to make them uh, especially convenient for everyone. Not necessarily convenient for me, but that should help those of you who are in more distant time zones. So check out my website to see the other dates and topics. And now that geography has been taken off the table, I hope you'll join me at one of these stay-at-home events. And remember, in so many ways that matter, horse people can make a difference.